Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. have some good news for you next week. Tom Collier is going to be your teacher. I will be preaching in the Birmingham area Sunday morning. I'll be back Sunday night, but that's not for the class. We're glad you joined us today. We're in Hebrews chapter 7 with a review of chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. And you may be thinking, we've seen that twice. I think it's three times. It's very important. This is sort of the crux of the book of Hebrews. And I want to talk about it again, just to make sure that we get it through. <clears throat> you know, many people say, I just don't read the Bible because I don't, under- I don't understand what I read, but I understand the Bible. No, you don't either. If you don't read the Bible, you don't know what it says. And you can't understand what you don't know what it says. I was preaching in a meeting several years ago. A young man came out the door. He was 20, 18 or 20. And he said, preacher, you got it wrong tonight. I said, what? Of course, I'm always listening because I do get things wrong. He said, Nate Abbott of Arhew offered the wrong kind of incense. They had the wrong incense recipe, not the wrong fire. I said, why do you believe so? Well, that's what the Bible says. How do you know? Well, that's what I've been told. I said, well, will you please turn to Leviticus? We're standing in the foyer. A lot of people around us. Will you please turn to Leviticus 10, 1 and 2, where the Bible says, they offered strange fire to the Lord, that which he had commanded them not. I didn't tell him that. But he looked at it. He said, it does say fire, doesn't it? He had not even read it. He heard some high-powered preacher talking about the wrong kind of incense that is often taught not what the Bible says or in Barbados one night I was in a gospel meeting and a mother came to me and she said sir my uh, twin daughters are uh, upset with you I said what for because you said that Abraham knew that God would raise up Isaac after he killed him I said where are your daughters and she showed me the girls. They were 16 years of age and nice ladies. I sat down beside them. I said, ladies, I hear you have a problem with my sermon. Yes, sir. We do not believe that Abraham knew God would raise Isaac from the dead. I said, turn over. And I forgot the passage. Now, turn over to Hebrews chapter 11 and read a certain verse. And they did. They said, well, it did say that God is able to raise him from the dead. Oh, it's okay. It's okay. I said, thank you very much. Now, sometimes we read something, don't understand it, but that's better than understanding without reading it because we misunderstand it when we don't read it. But I want us to look at Hebrews 6 again, just briefly. It is impossible for those who were not once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become takers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted it the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now, 
As I've said two or three times before, and I'll keep on saying it, Calvinists have a great problem with this. Calvinism is a very dangerous doctrine. And I listed here the tulip doctrine. I won't go through those again. You know what they are. But there are people who call themselves two-point Calvinists. They believe two of those tulip things are three-point Calvinists. The real Calvinists say, no, 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 no. You have to be a five-point Calvinist. Well, I think you have to be a zero-point Calvinist to be the scriptural person that God wants you to be. But, But we have a problem with that too. And there are two people in the congregation who came to me, and I'm glad to hear this. I was glad for them to come and said, there is an explanation that we have heard that says we can so sin that we cannot repent, that God will send us a strong delusion that we might believe a lie and be condemned. That is true. And Judas evidently did that because he came back and repented. One version says he regretted, brought the money back, The priest wouldn't take it, and he threw it into the temple. He threw it into the building of the temple, not the the general temple grounds. He threw it into the building, the naos it's called, and went out and hanged himself. He'd evidently gone too far to repent. But at the same time, in this context, we need to know that there's a different kind of situation here that can be added to that. It may be that These people could go so far as not to repent. But the theme of this book, the context of the passage, is dealing with Christian Jews going back to Moses. And it could be that going back to Moses would entrench them into that law so much that they couldn't repent. But the point I tried to make is that there's a possibility that here is room for their trying to be repentant under that law. The days of all. I won't go through that again, but from the first of the civil year to the 10th day of the civil year, the day of atonement, that was a time of repentance, so much so that they agonized over their sins and went to their uh, respective uh, uh, friends and enemies and said, please forgive me for the sins I've committed against you. And they were renewed to repentance. And on the day of atonement, their sins were hauled away into the wilderness. Now that is a... That is one explanation of this, because after they had turned back, they crucified the Son of God afresh. Well, people have been forgiven for crucifying him, so that's not an unforgivable sin. But they crucified him by denying him and going back and saying, we're going to take up the old law, or we're going to add the old law to to Christ. And that's just as bad, because you take Christ, the perfect one, and add something to it, you have imperfection. You do anything to Christianity. You do anything to our Lord Jesus Christ to improve him. You diminish him and cause him to be something he is not. So here we go. Total abandonment. They could no longer be restored to repentance by the rights of Moses' law. They could not be restored to repentance through Christ because they had left him. They could have returned to him. Some of them at least could have and been forgiven. I believe Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6 leaves that open. But in the condition they were in going back to Moses, abandoning Christ, they had no hope of salvation. It is impossible for them to be renewed to salvation or to repentance under those circumstances. Okay, let's go to the text now. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem... 
priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and then king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. We talked about Melchizedek a little before this class. I'll talk about him some more. First of all, his name, his name Melchizedek, is from two Hebrew words, Melech, which means king, and Sadak, which means righteousness. Could literally be translated the king of righteousness, or my king is righteous. Whatever. Doesn't matter how you translate. Could be translated either way. Doesn't matter. It's still a great translation. And uh, Melchizedek is king of Salem. That's Jerusalem, we believe. And uh, Abraham hears that his nephew Lot has been captured by four kings that came down to Sodom and Gomorrah to fight against five kings. And Abraham takes 348 of his men and goes and takes Lot back. He chases those kings and takes Lot back. You might say, hey, four kings? And Abraham goes up there with 348 men, takes Lot and all their things back? Yes, that's right. Well, see, these kings were like mayors of, uh, well, Hazel Green's too big to say mayor of Hazel Green or Gurley. Maybe mayor of Lick Skillet up in off Butternag Road. They were, of course, very, uh, how should I say this? They, they were put in place properly. They had certain credentials. Uh, they were not just mayors. They were more than that, but they didn't have many subjects. It's just a fact that they didn't. They go down four kings. They beat five kings down there, Sodom and Gomorrah and Zohar and so forth in that battle. And then go back, go back to the north, taking Lot and his crew with him. And Abraham goes and gets them and gets his family. And then comes back through Salem and Melchizedek comes out to meet him with bread and wine. This is a celebration. This is a probably a, a, a feast of peace. And they meet and then Abraham pays tithes to him. We'll see in just a minute from the spoils of the, the garment. Uh, the, the spoils of the war, I mean. The king of Salem, this word is similar to shalom, which means peace. If you go to uh, Israel and you, you meet someone they, and they greet you, they'll say shalom, hello. If, if they get ready to leave, they'll say shalom, goodbye. Well, really, really it's peace, peace. But they have it with the hello greeting and the, the goodbye greeting also. But Melchizedek, Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God and remains a priest continually. A lot of people have come to believe that Melchizedek was a heavenly being. But, you know, angels were not without beginning and without end. In order to literally be that way, he had to be God. Melchizedek was not God. Some say he was Shem. That's all speculation. I believe he was a man that God raised up for this purpose, and nobody knew him. He didn't, he didn't quote his genealogy. He didn't say anything about his birth, his death. It was somebody that was just came on the scene to represent something that was eternal. 
Jesus Christ. He was a type of Jesus Christ, made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Is Melchizedek still priest? Yes, through Jesus Christ, who is in the order of Melchizedek. That priesthood set forth here is still well and alive today. Our priest, our high priest, Jesus Christ, is the high priest that rules in heaven forever. That's the implication here. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of his the spoils. A tenth means tithe. And Abraham gives a tenth of his spoils, the spoils of war, to him. Uh, he, uh, he is uh, subservient to this great man. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people, according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. I know that somebody here might be saying, hmm, that's so mixed up. It's not mixed up when you sit down and think about it and look at what he really says. Here's Abraham, the great patriarch, the father of nations, the father of the faithful. He gives a tenth of the spoils of war to uh, this Melchizedek. He is the father of Levi, who will receive the priesthood, and Levi will receive tithes from the people according to the law. Now, the law was not yet. Abraham lived in the 21st century B.C. The law didn't come about until the 15th century B.C. So we're five, six hundred years from the law coming to pass. And uh, their brethren, the uh, brethren of, uh, of Levi, through whom uh, have come from the loins, that's the hips, H-I-P-S, of Abraham, but whose genealogy is not derived from them, but, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Melchizedek had no relationship to Abraham. He did not come from Abraham. The priest that will come later came from Abraham. They came through his son, Levi. That's what we see all through the Old Testament, but not here. This priesthood from Melchizedek is a different kind of priesthood. And the priesthood set up at Mount Sinai was for a temporary purpose in order to bring the priesthood of Melchizedek into place permanently. It was something that was given on a temporary basis. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the greater. That's usually true. The lesser is blessed by the greater. Abraham and Melchizedek, who is the greater? Melchizedek is the greater. Abraham pays tithes to him, and Melchizedek blesses him. This is as God would have it. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. This is interesting. Already pointed out that it's going to be 500 years at least until Levi becomes high, until his seed, Levi's uh, seed, uh, uh, Aaron, becomes high priest. 500 years. But it says Levi was in the loins of his father. 
Abraham at that time. It's hard for us to imagine. We need to realize this, though. The people of this day perceived that when a man is born, he has all his descendants inside him. They did not believe that a woman made any contribution to the birth of a baby, except she took the seed of man and it grew in her body with her nourishment to become his child. It was not her child in a real biological sense. She was only an incubator. It was the man's seed that made the child. And the man's seed, Abraham's seed, had Levi in it. Here's a little man, Levi, inside him, see. And all his descendants after him, they were all inside him. And whatever those uh, seed were placed inside Sarah and uh, later inside other women, all the way down to Levi's mother, seed placed inside her, and she made Levi a man as God intended him to be. That is the That is the thought, that is the biological process that they perceived in that day. Even Levi, verse 9, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, which means Melchizedek was greater than Levi. Levi, the head of the priestly tribe, had one greater than he. Melchizedek and Melchizedek's priesthood was greater than the Aaronic priesthood of the priesthood that came out of Levi still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him therefore if perfection were through the Leviticus priesthood for under it under that priesthood the people received the law what further purpose what further need was there for another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is a change of the law. Now get it. God set a priesthood in order at Mount Sinai. He received the law. He made priests. He made Aaron the high priest, the first high priest. And Aaron's sons became priests after him. And one of Aaron's sons became high priest after him. But there's something wrong with the Aaronic priesthood. Uh, well, you say God did it, it must be perfect. No, it wasn't time for the, the kind of priesthood he wanted. He had to give a temporary priesthood. And uh, then he changed the priesthood, and he had to change the law. Don't get that mixed up. God didn't make a new law and say, well, I have a new law here. I'm going to have to have a new priesthood. No, no, no. He said, I'm going to make a new priesthood, and I'm going to have to have a new law when I make a new priesthood. That is a point that we should never miss. Miss. Now, what was wrong with the Levitical priesthood? God made it. It looked good. It worked. Or did it? Number one, a priest's time of service was brief from age 30 to 50, generally speaking. There were violations of that, but that's usually 20 years that a priest would serve. His time of service, that's that's short. Uh, This priesthood lasted for 1,500 years. And yet one man was to rule for about 20 years, either as high priest or as a general priest. The high priest, all the priests were fallible. That means they could make mistakes, and they did make mistakes. In the priesthood of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ made, no, makes, 
made and makes no mistakes. He's absolutely perfect. But look at Leviticus 16. I wish we had time to study that chapter for about two Sundays, at least one Sunday. It's the Day of Atonement. Aaron shall bring a bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement. That means a covering for himself and for his house, not for his wife and children. The house, there's the priesthood. And shall kill the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself and his house. All the priests that served under him had this made for them, had this sacrifice made for them on the Day of Atonement. Later on, Aaron would take two goats, a goat for the sins of the people, that's a goat to the Lord, and a goat for Azazel, which we call the scapegoat, erroneously so. The reason we call it the scapegoat is because it escaped out in the wilderness, and we didn't know how to translate Azazel, and still don't, don't know who that is. So if we call him Azazel, that's just a, that's a Hebrew word, untranslated, and nobody can explain it. But there's the goat for Azazel, which bore the sins of the people into the wilderness. And that's, uh, that's what happened uh, uh, after the uh, sacrifice was made for the priest, high priest, and the priest uh, of that family. Number three... Here's what's wrong with it. While God removed the sins that had been atoned for using animal blood, he removed only fleshly impurities, not the dead works of conscience. This point is so very, very important. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, that's the red heifer, sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The blood of Christ cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The blood of animals could not do that. They cleanse the flesh. Well, you mean they got dirt off the body? No, no, no. That's not what they did. They cleanse the impurities of the flesh. They ceremoniously, ceremoniously cleanse the person. I pointed out last time, I think, that when the Essenes down in Qumran went to Jerusalem, they were so fanatical, they'd come back to the gates of their village, take off all their clothes, wash them in water, wash their bodies in water several times to get the filth of Jerusalem off of them. Now, it may be that they had dust on them from Jerusalem, and it may be that was filthy dust. But more than that, the impurities of Jerusalem was more than filthy dust. It was a filthy existence of the people. They had associated with people they thought were just the worst of the the worst. And they wanted to get that filth off them. So they took a bath. Now, may I emphasize something here that I've emphasized before, but again... Sometimes we don't seem to get it. And you've heard this all your life, First Peter 3, 21, the like figure, like Noah's flood, the like figure whereunto baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. Literally, not the removal of dirt from the body. But that's, that won't get it. Because Peter's not saying this is not taking a bath on Saturday night. 
with warm water and soap. He's not saying that. He's saying this is not an Old Testament example of washing away the filth of the flesh. And even though King James was translated a long time ago, it has it right when it says filth of the flesh, not putting away the filth of the flesh. A lot of new translations says, one translation says dirt from the body. First of all, that word flesh is not body. It is sarx in the Greek, body is summa. The word is dirt, incidentally. But we use that word in a, in a way that's symbolic too. We sometimes find a, a man who uh, does evil things to children. We call him a dirty old man. Well, he might be a squeaky clean man. He might have on a $1,000 suit. He might have his hair styled every day down at the best shop in the world. He might be a squeaky clean person, but he is still a dirty old man. We give him no slack. And this is what 1 Peter 3, 21 is talking about. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh. It doesn't do what the Old Testament washings did. What is it? It's an appeal to God for a clear conscience. Very plain. An appeal to God for a clear conscience. What does the blood of Christ do? It cleans up our conscience. What does the blood of bulls and goats do? It cleans up their, it cleaned up their flesh. It doesn't do anything for us. It cleaned up their flesh. It took away those uh, things they contacted when they sat down in a dirty chair or when they touched a dead body. That's what it did. And Peter said, this is not the same. The baptism I'm talking about is not that kind of baptism. This is a new baptism that appeals to God for a clear conscience. It says to God, clean me up with the blood of Christ. And that power comes by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Wow. You know, Jesus did not prove he was Christ by dying on the cross. A lot of people died on the cross. He proved he was the Christ by his resurrection. Okay, number four. Here's another thing wrong with the Old Testament uh, Levitical priesthood. Priestly sacrifices and rituals allow God to tolerate their sins until the same rituals could be plun, uh, performed again next year on the Day of Atonement. Now, every day, twice, a burnt offering was made at the temple. The burnt offering was for the purpose of saying, God, we're yours. We, we give ourselves totally to you. But it was also a blood sacrifice, which means it had in, in, the, in it the ability to take away sins. But what did it do with the sins? It kept them in Jerusalem at the temple under the high priest's headdress. They were not taken away all the way until the day of atonement when that goat for Azazel goes and takes them out into the wilderness. That's when they're taken away. And God, God says, okay, you're all cleaned up now. I can tolerate you one more year. And of course, the sins keep piling up there in Jerusalem. He hauls them away again and again and again. That's, a, that's not good. I mean, it's the best it could do. But I mean, that's not what God wanted. Number five, atonement and forgiveness were factual in the Old Testament, but not permanent because no purchase price had been made. 
those sins still existed in the wilderness until Jesus died on the cross. And Paul says, you are a peculiar people. I know my brethren like to say, okay, we are peculiar. That's not what it means. The word peculiar there has to do with money. You are a purchased people. Modern translations say, and they're correct. Number six, eroding spirituality promoted political appointments and simony in the intertestamental period. I want to spend a little time here. It just brings some stuff to your uh, to your mind that you might not know existed. The word simony has to do with purchasing offices. Uh, like from Simon the sorcerer tried to purchase the gift of God with money. Well, there came a time in the religious world and in so-called Christianity that men started to purchase the right to be a bishop or the right to be a cardinal or a right even to be pope. That's called simony. And uh, that started in the intertestamental period. Here's a historical note that I found to be very interesting. Alexandra, which is Herod the Great's sister-in-law, wanted her son, uh, Aristobulus, Aristobulus, to become high priest. And Herod didn't want to appoint him. Herod, Herod the king, didn't want to appoint him. You hear that? You see how far we've gone? Herod the king had no power to appoint a high priest, but they had started doing that. The high priest was a political position in the New Testament. It came to be a political position during the 400 years that are silent years, we call them, before the New Testament. It is a pathetic time. So uh, Alexander appears, uh, appeals to uh, Cleopatra down in Egypt and said, get Mark Antony, your boyfriend, who has power in Rome to make sure my son is appointed high priest. And Cleopatra tried and it didn't work. But Herod somehow decided to appoint this guy, Aristobulus, to high priest. Aristobulus, I think it's pronounced. When he was 17 years of age, he was a tall, handsome man. And he first appeared at the Feast of Tabernacle in 36 B.C., Aristobulus was so popular that Herod became jealous and perceived him as a threat to his power. Herod's soldiers, well, Herod called a, had a party. We're going to have a party for Aristobulus down in Jericho at my, at my mansion down there. Uh, we want important people to come. And of course, the soldiers were there and uh, they decided to go swimming and they invited Aristobulus. He was glad to be there and they drowned him. That is a historical fact. Got rid of that guy. Had to get a new high priest. You know, Herod was a mean fellow. He's the one that killed the baby. It's not thousands. We exaggerate that. Bethlehem was a small town. All the children under two, there were plenty, but not even hundreds. Some have estimated 15 or 20. But one is too many, whatever the case may be. But he was the guy who did that. That is, uh, that is so terrible. Not only that, but he was so unpopular, he felt like at his death, there would be rejoicing throughout the land. So as he was getting near his death, he knew it, and he arrested the prominent men of various villages and took them into Caesarea and held them at the Hippodrome with the orders that on the day of his death, they were all to be executed. 
so that the country would mourn instead of rejoice on the day of his death. Well, thank God, his sister, Salome, and her husband didn't let that come to pass. When Herod died, they released those men. That, too, is a historical fact. Okay, look at 13. For he of whom these things were spoken belongs to another tribe, for which no man has officiated at the altar. It is evident that the Lord arose out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. Jesus from Judah, the priest had to be a Levite. Oh, that's, that's the in the Levitical priesthood. That's Moses' law. That's Aaron's priesthood. Uh-uh. This was the priesthood according to Melchizedek. And incidentally, this shows me that we're guided by the silence of the Scripture. Uh, it is evident that the Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. There's nothing in the Bible that says, Thou shalt not appoint a priest from Judah. It is, you know, priests come from Levi. All priests come from Levi. That's God's way. What about Judah? I didn't say anything about Judah. You know, we get all messed up. Brother Glenn talked about this a little while ago. We get all messed up on instrumental music. There's nowhere in the New Testament that, that instrumental music is thou shalt not. It's not there. But it's very clear that God wanted a cappella singing in Scripture. And he didn't come along at the end of the uh, miraculous age and say, now wait a minute. I commanded instruments in the Old Testament. I forgot to command them in the New. Let me see if I can get John so he can go around and start commanding that. I just overlooked it. No, God didn't command it because obviously he didn't want it. The Bible does not say thou shalt not baptize an eight-day-old baby. You can't find that. Heard a preacher the other day talking about that. He said, no, but the Bible teaches infant baptism because this promise, Acts 2, is to you and to your children. And all that are far off. I thought, how ignorant can you be? For children, there's descendants. To this generation and your descendants and to the Gentiles. And then went on to point out that the Philippian jailer's house family was baptized. So What? They were taught the gospel. And if there were any that could not understand the gospel, they were not baptized. 15. It is yet far more evident that if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of flesh, the commandment, that Old Testament, but according to the power of an endless life, for he testifies you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a nulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the beginning of a better hope through which we draw near to God. What's the better hope? The better hope is in Christ, of course. The better hope is the new law. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by whom, by him, who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. 
by so much more, Jesus has become a surety that is a guarantee of a better covenant, that covenant under which we live. Aren't we happy? Also, there were many priests because they were persecuted. I'm sorry, they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost. Pantilas. I put that in there. It's a Greek word. I put it in there for a special reason, though. The word P-A-N. You know what that means? If I talked about Pan-American activities, say that means all of America. A pan a pandemic is a universal epidemic. A panorama is a full view. Pan means everything. So here he's able to save everything to the extent of everything. Those who come to God through him, since he always lives and makes intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. What high priest under Levi fits those qualifications? Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, higher than the heavens. None of them. Only the priest after the order of Melchizedek. Who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's? For this he did once for all when he showed, when he offered himself up. Hmm. Interesting. You know, the law was a schoolmaster to bring those Jews to Christ. That's all it was for. Now that Christ has come, Galatians 3, we're no longer under a schoolmaster. Schoolmaster is not a professor, not even a high school teacher, not an elementary school, school teacher. A schoolmaster uh, was a schoolmaster, is tutor, which means one who guides the minor child throughout life. My sister was my tutor. She was 12 years older than I. And I remember when I was six years old, wearing my cap somewhere, I went into a house with her and didn't take my cap off. And she pulled it off. And then she told me, she said, James, don't ever wear your cap inside a person's house. And don't wear it to the table. Always take your cap off. I remember very well, cold winter time, and I had a pair of earmuffs, and she and I went down to Burleson's store down at Cherry Tree. And I started in the store. I said, Doris, do I need to take my earmuffs off? She said, no, it's all right to wear them in the store. <laughs> she was my tutor. She had me trained as best she could she had my clothes laid out for worship my shoes polished and I had to take care of those things as best I could for the law appoints as high priest men who have weaknesses but the word of oath which came after the law appoints the man who has been perfected forever now let me ask you this why would anybody ever want to go back under Moses why would they ever want to go back to the law I can tell you why it's, it's very simple the law was very appealing it was very attractive it was an event I mean three mandatory feast days a year think of the joy they had in Jerusalem on those three days they met friends from all over the place they had celebrations 
They can watch the priests as they did the various functions at the temple. They can listen to lectures. It was a joyous occasion. They could hear the choral groups, the instruments, you name it. Everything, they could, they could see the $5 billion temple, and they lost all that when they came to Christ. Every bit of it, because all that had been symbolic. Christianity does not appeal to the flesh. Judaism appealed to the flesh. Christianity appeals to the spirit. And people who are not spiritual cannot tolerate genuine Christianity. They have to have their own thing. They have to do their own thing. They have to invent their own gods. And I thank God for people like you who say, Father, take my will and make it yours. I don't want another God. I want you. Let's bow. Father, thank you for blessings in Christ. Thank you for lifting us up. Thank you for being able to. Thank you for giving us the privilege to be able to praise you, glorify you. Thank you for the book of Hebrews that it teaches us concerning Christ, his priesthood, and ourselves as priests working through him as a high priest. Continue with us. Forgive us of our sins. Bring us back at the next appointed time. And bless Brother John as he teaches next week. We pray through Christ. Amen. Don't run in the hall. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.